thinking at this time the kids and youth are dismissed. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back. I don't know if that service Pastor Woody shared. I was doing some beach evangelism. Um, but I just want to say, you guys were not far from my mind. You know, I got, um, you may not notice, but we have HBIC Instagram now. You get all your news. Um, so every now and then on my Instagram feed, I would see VBS has moved inside, severe thunderstorms. And I'm like, man, I'm away this week, and they're just blessing me by taking all this horrible weather so we can enjoy the beach. So I just thank you all for, you know, suffering and surviving those thunderstorms so that, you know, we could have rest and uh, reflection and memory making. So you weren't far from my thoughts. I appreciate you guys taking that rain. Um, this morning, we're back in Acts. We're going to be going back to this, um, the church then and now, looking at what we learned from back then that kind of helps us today. And today we're going to be talking about evangelism. And, and I think this is important because we're going to do it through the lens of Philip and his story. Most of us, when we're introduced to evangelism, oh, hey, Philip. Most of us, when we're introduced to evangelism, um, it's very, very different. I remember years ago, I was in London, and I was with a group of uh, Christians who were having relation, um, yeah, like conversations and trying to build relationships with a, a Muslim community. And I remember one of the days, they're like, today we'll do evangelism. I was like, ooh, this is interesting. Like, are we going to go and get, like, tracks and stuff? And they're like, no, no, no. We're going to go to a shopping center. It's very busy, and we're going to place you right there. You're going to tell people about Jesus. I was like, oh, all right, you know? And so for most of us, when we think about evangelism, that's what we reflect on. That's what we think about, this idea of like going out into the wild, right, roar, going out into the wild and then telling people about Jesus. But I think when you look at the story of Philip, who's actually called the evangelist, we'll realize that evangelism is more than being thrown out into the wild. That evangelism is more than maybe giving tracts. That evangelism isn't just something we do, but it's how we live. If you have your Bibles, please turn me to Acts chapter 8. We'll be reading a little bit of a longer portion. Um, it'll be verse 4 to 25 as we talk about how the church back then evangelized. So Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 4. Um, I'll begin at verse 4. We'll be reading in the NIV. We'll also have it up front so you can follow there as well. Acts 8, 4 to 25. Starting at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits, I have to say this, last service, I don't know if it was a shriek or a baby crying, but I said shriek, and I was like, ah, and I heard it. Um, which is really funny, because when you read the rest of the verse, it says this. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed were, or lame were healed. So imagine my face reading that. Um, I'm not saying your baby was cursed. I just realized what I just said. Wow. Sorry, person. Hopefully you're not watching the service. Um, for with streaks, impure spirits came out of money, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon, who had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria, he boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on hands of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you that you are indeed the God of good news. You're the God who tells us about the story of your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we, we pray that you help us to not only know the story, not only live the story, but to truly share good news with our world. So, Father God, we thank you that your son came into this world. We thank you that he lived and taught us how to live. We thank you that even in his death, sin and, and, and destruction, was darkness was destroyed once and for all. But we thank you also that he was resurrected, that he's alive today. Lord, we pray that we live lives of evangelism, that it's not just something we do, but it's how we live. We thank you for the life of Philip. We thank you for the movement of the early church and how they were willing to submit to the Spirit, preach the Son, and tell people they can come home to you again. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So one of the, the interesting things about the, this word gospel, and even we think about evangelism, is that our current understanding, the modern understanding, kind of separates gospel and evangelism. In fact, if I ask people what is gospel, uh, growing up to me, that was black people, what we did in church. You know, it's the songs my grandma listened to is, is how we sang. Then I came to America, and I got introduced to this thing called Southern Gospel, and I was real confused, right? And I was just like, oh, this is different. <laughs> like, how is this still gospel? So if you, you ask people what is gospel, for some of them, it's, it's music. For other people, they'll say it's outreach, right? It's this compelment, compelling that we have from the Spirit to go out into the world and tell them about Jesus, you know? And for others, they'll say, well, it's, it's a lifestyle, right? Like the gospel has transformed and changed me. God changes lives, and I need to go out and show people how to live and love like Jesus. But whether it's the songs we sing or, or the, the people we reach or, or how we live, it's always proclaiming the good news and the good news that Jesus Christ has come. And for other people, though, when we think about evangelizing then, right, that's our modern concept of gospel, but evangelizing is converting people, going to people and telling them this good news. It's, it's preaching the gospel. So we kind of have like this two things as if they're, they're separated. And, and so because of that, our modern understanding might understand gospel and evangelism almost like children, right? If you have children and, and you have more than one, you look at them, you'd be like, how? Right? Like, because you just look at them, you're like, how do you both come from us? Like, where does this happen? Yeah? Or, or if you, even if you had siblings, right, and you come from the same parents, you realize that you're different than me and we're different than them. How is this all happening? So you know there's a relation there, but we're just all different. And I think that's kind of how we understand gospel and evangelism. Like, we might know they come from the same source, but it's different. But that was not the ancient understanding of gospel. That was not the ancient understanding of even evangelizing. In fact, instead of them coming similarly from the same source, they were actually taught as one together. Because the ancient understanding of gospel was that God has fulfilled his promises through Jesus Christ. And what was the promise? That he would leave heaven to come to earth and be born. That he would live and teach us how to live in love. That he would die, yes, but he would also be resurrected on the third day. That was their understanding of gospel. It wasn't just the songs you sing. It wasn't your outreach. It wasn't even how you live. 
It was the story of Jesus Christ. That was the gospel Jesus Christ preached and proclaimed. And that was basically the, the, the Jewish understanding of gospel. But one of the interesting things is that the, the, the evangelion is what we get the Greek word for evangelism, right? That actually means gospel. And I find this fascinating because in English, we don't really like hard work. We'll take a word like rendezvous and then we'll put it in English and be like, oh, no, it's still rendezvous, right? Like, we'll take a word like pinata, we'll bring it in English and be like, oh, no, it's still pinata, right? But for some reason, we went from the, the Greek evangelion and we took it through English and we got gospel. And I think that's why we have them separated as two different things. But evangelion means gospel and gospel means Jesus Christ preached and proclaimed. Now, this is interesting because God works within the context of culture. For the Greek people, when they thought about Evangelion, to them it was good news, right? Proclaiming military victory. So, for example, the Greeks crushed a lot of people. I know we're pacifists and Anabaptists, so you have to use your imagination, right? But let's say Stilton was acting up again, right? They would go in, crush Stilton. And then what they would do? They would preach the Evangelion. Good news, Stilton was acting up. We crushed him again, right? Preach the good news. We have crushed Stilton again, right? And for some of you who are from Stilton, I apologize. They'll also crush Susquehanna Township if they come up, right? Like, we just crushed people. That was the good news. They would go around like, Evangelion. We crushed them again, right? That was the Greek, right? But the Roman also had, um, <laughs> the Romans were like the Greeks were on steroids, right? If you're looking for like a modern look of what it looks like to be America in Bible times, we are the Romans, right? We do kind of the similar things. We just have just as good PR as the Romans. So, so the Romans didn't go around saying, we crushed you. They just had better storytellers. So the Romans would say, you know, what is the gospel? You know, it's good news, right? So it's kind of like when they had a new king, for example. It was a proclamation that a king has been born. Now, for most of us, we do, you know, um, Shutterfly or something. We get little postcards, and you send it to people, and you put it on your fridge, right? No, no, no. The Romans had better PR than you do. Like, they would take out an ad in the newspaper, if you will, right, and proclaim it everywhere, like, the king is born, the king is born, the king is born, the king is here. But also, they would also, like, when the king ascends to the throne, which is, uh, I always found this fascinating. When I started learning about kings, especially in Europe, I'm like, this is a weird thing. Like, you can't be who you're called to be or who your society wants you to be until your parent dies. Like, to me, that's like therapy. That's like walking therapy, right? Like, you're going to need some help. Like, your entire existence is predicated on literally your parent dying. So if you have extra time this week, pray for Charles. You know, it's been decades, right? I don't know how he's doing, but it's been decades. It's been a while, right? But whenever a new king ascended to the throne, they would literally announce it, put it in the newspaper or, or get the beacons on and walk around town. The king is to the throne. The king is to the throne. The king is to the throne. But because they had good PR like we do in America, right? They didn't just say, we crushed you or my mom died. You know, I'm king now. Like, they would actually say, like, the king has ascended to the throne. What a fulfillment of our ancient prophecies. What? This king has come to, to remove all wickedness and sin and destroy all that is bad. And for some of you, you're like, I don't know how to do this. Just remember, we do this every four years when we elect the president, right? Like, every four years we elect the president. Like, it doesn't even matter if you like the person or don't like the person. It's just like, I just feel like things will be better now. You know, like that, that breath of fresh air, it was the same thing. I'm telling you, we are Rome, same PR, right? Like they had the same thing as like, he will take away all the wickedness. Everything will be okay. He will save his people. He will save the world. Why is all this interesting? It's interesting and important because God works with that. God is going to take this Jewish understanding that 
I have this prophecy that my son is going to come. He's going to born. He's going to live. He's going to die. He's going to be resurrected. I'm going to start with that. But then I'm also going to take the Greek understanding and the Roman understanding to tell you what the Evangelion is, to tell you what the gospel is. And so that's how God combines these three cultures and to teach us what is the gospel, what is the good news. What's good news to us? But that our King Jesus, God's son, has come. What's good news to us, but that the battle over sin has been won? What's good news to us that there's no darkness that God cannot heal? There's no pain that God cannot resurrect and, and God cannot reconcile and God cannot heal within us. What is good news to us, but that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies? What is good news to us, but that Jesus Christ has come to not just remove sin and sickness from us forever, to not just save his people, but to save the world? What is good news to us, but our Jesus has come to be redemption, to be reconciliation, and to be restoration. That is the good news. And that's the good news we're called to share. So what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus lived, right? Jesus is resurrected. But that's the good news we have to share with the world. And I think if we have that base of understanding, it helps us understand Philip's story a little bit more. Because Philip isn't just called to go out and preach. Philip is called to go out and live. When we meet Philip, when we meet Philip, it actually happens back in Acts chapter 6. And what I love about Luke, and I think Luke is a genius, right? One of the geniuses of Luke, he does what all good writers and script writers do. They don't just have characters that just show up out of nowhere, right? Every now and then you'll have foreshadowing. And we talked about Saul a couple weeks ago. We talked about how Saul was there when Stephen was killed and he approved of it. And he may have led some of the persecution against the Christians. We'll find out more about this Saul later. But Philip is a little easier to miss. Because he shows up in one verse in Acts chapter 6. But where he shows up is that he is a deacon alongside Stephen. That when the church said, you know, this was a sharing church who was supposed to share everything. But yet they let, you know, cultural differences. They let, you know, um, family loyalty all come before the gospel. And they were actually neglecting the Greek speaking Jews or the Hellenistic Jews in their culture. So the apostle says, no, no, no. I want you to find seven men who have full of wisdom and, and, and full of the spirit. So they can take care of these widows and Stephen was one of the seven so Stephen like Philip who we now meet is one of the seven too and Philip this one of the seven is not only a deacon and taking after these widows but he's full of the spirit he's full of wisdom and the apostles come and they bless them and they lay hands on them and we said one of the incredible things is this might have been the first time in Acts that we don't just hear their numbers grew but we hear what the disciples grew and that's significant because it's not just the people who now hear and believe and say, I'm going to try and follow. Disciples are people who are committed to following God. So it's not just about saying you believe Jesus. It's about actually following what Jesus asks you to do. So the disciples grow. And I think it's fun. We said, heal the land, right? Meet the needs, set the captives free. That's what we sang in that song. And when that happens, according to Acts, the disciples grew. When we heal our land, when we meet the need through the Spirit's help, it's not just people who see us and believe, but people commit their lives to following Jesus. So when we first meet Philip, he too is a deacon. Come a couple of chapters later in Acts chapter 8, we meet Philip, the evangelist. I think this is interesting. Now, some of you might go back and read. I try to find it, so I'm only 99.99% sure about this. But I think Philip is the first one in Acts 
who's called the evangelist. And it's something very, very interesting that's happening because in Acts chapter 7, after Stephen is killed, the church is persecuted. And what's interesting to me in this situation is that so much of our lives are based on how we feel, what we think, what we know, what we think we know, our situations. And I'm not saying all of that's not important, but I'm saying that we make that too important. We make our situations too important because when it takes our eyes off of God, we stop living and walking by faith. We may know that God loves us, but we just think our situation is too big for God to handle. We may know that God is always there, but we just tell ourselves maybe we're too far away. And I think it's very interesting that as the church is persecuted, they're all united and in Jerusalem. They're spread out and scattered now all throughout Samaria. I love that their situation was dire, but they still stepped up as a people and says, no, we will praise God here. And I think that's very important because I'm not saying your situation that you're in is not important, but I am saying that God deserves praise no matter what you're going through. I am saying that if you're willing to say, God, I want to praise you here. And then one commenter said it like this. It's almost like the apostles stayed in Jerusalem and all the preachers are the ones who got spread out. Because what they did is even though they're being persecuted, they preach the gospel. They preach Jesus Christ. Jesus come, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus resurrected. And I love that even though they're persecuted, they're going forth and preaching the gospel. Now, the reason, though, I think Philip is called the evangelist is because this is the first time in Acts that we've seen someone go preach the gospel, but not to their own people. Because you remember Pentecost, right? They come from the known world, and they all gather in Jerusalem for the feast. The Spirit comes down to hear Christ, or to hear the gospel in their own language, and what happens? They go back to their people. Think about the apostles, right? Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, yes, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But where have they congregated? In Jerusalem. Where are they preaching? In the temple. Who are they preaching to? Their own people. Even Stephen, who we talked about, who kind of took that first step out, when he goes to preach, yes, he's going to synagogues, but which synagogues is he going to? The Hellenistic synagogues, the Greek Jews, that's who he's preaching to. Philip is called the evangelist because he may be the first one who actually goes out to different people. And who does he go to? but to the Samaritans. And what I love about Philip is that he looks like his Jesus because Jesus says, love your enemies. And it's not a suggestion, right? It's not like you should try this, right? Like, it's not like, mm, I don't know what you're doing on Tuesday, but you should try to love your enemies. It's a command. It's an expectation. And if you want to say you follow Jesus and you're a disciple of Jesus, it's not an option. You are to love your enemies. And who were the Samaritans but great, great enemies to the Jews? I don't have to rehash the whole history, but you know that the Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. You know that every couple of years, some rebellion would come and they would fight each other, burn down each other's temples, kill each other. You know that this wasn't just a rivalry. This was a betrayal because the Jews felt like we were taken into captivity. You stayed behind. You were not faithful to God. You actually bastardized the faith by actually marrying other people and serving other gods and not even believing what we believe. You are hated. But I find it interesting that when God sends out his evangelists, he sends them to the ancient enemies. And I think what's beautiful about God working within a context of culture is that these Samaritans who were hated from the Jewish perspective are the ones 
but give them a home. I think that's easy to miss. That yes, they hated them, but as they're persecuted and they go out, where do they land but Samaria? So when we see our God says, love your enemies, it's not a suggestion, yes. It's what we're called to do, yes. But how great is our God that he works ahead of us? That we can walk into enemy land, he's already prepared for that enemy to make home for us. How great is the God we serve? And another thing about Philip and his Jesus is that remember, Jesus started this work in Samaria. Remember in John chapter 4, when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, and I say Philip might be the first evangelist in Acts, but one of the first evangelists in the Gospels is this Samaritan woman. And I love when people tell me, oh, women, women are not supposed to preach. And I'm like, you're wrong. And as long as you start from that premise, we can have this conversation, you know? Like, I, I've learned. I went to Messiah College. We just argued all the time and never won. So now I just argue when you accept you're wrong, then we can argue. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, I'm wrong on this. Now I will listen. It's beautiful. It's a great way to argue. But this is the woman who went out. And Jesus has died and gone to heaven. So maximum, maximum, it's been three years since Jesus spoke to that woman. Maximum has been three years since she went back with her testimony that the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. Believe on his name. So not only is Samaria home to these scattered refugees, to these persecuted Christians, but God has gone ahead and started doing the work. But the thing that's interesting to me is that God's always going to work within the context of this culture. So even though Philip is going to build on the work of the Samaritan woman, He's going to preach the gospel. So Philip, the deacon, has become Philip, the evangelist, and the evangelist has become the witness to Jesus Christ. And Philip shows up on the scene. He basically says, God has sent me here to tell you about the Messiah. And I love that the Spirit works through Philip to save and to heal people. And at first, when you read this, you're like, well, this is interesting. Are they believing because Philip is preaching the gospel? Are they believing because there's miracles being done? But what's a miracle? but God doing what we cannot do. What's a miracle, but God extending beyond the natural belief and beyond the natural realm. What's a miracle, but someone who was blind now being able to see, someone who was lame now being able to walk, someone who was depressed who now knows joy. What's a miracle, but someone who had no hope, but now has the hope of Jesus in their lives. What's a miracle, but God extending beyond. And one commenter said it like this, it's not that they needed the miracles, but is that God knew that in that culture, for God to be preeminent, for God to be sovereign, for God to be the God Almighty Most High, God needed to be more powerful than that culture. So Philip preached Jesus, and he says, let me show you what my Jesus can do. And that's what happens, right? And the miracles then draw even more people in. And it's this reminder to us that, that God works within the context of culture because Samaria and, and, and changing the religion and, and adapting all these different promises or different aspects of their culture around them was a place where sorcery thrived, was a place where the signs and wonders were, were how big you are and how powerful you are. It was a place where you can see Satan present, but the interesting thing here is that God doesn't look at that as enemy. He looks at it as opportunity. It's a reminder to us that it's time to take off the shackles, right? It's time to put our chains down. It's time to stop fighting culture wars, right? It's been 2,000 years. Like, let's stop fighting with the cultures around us. And let's start looking the way God looks at culture as opportunities, 
Because within every culture, there's a place where God is already working, God is already moving. And it's your job, it's your job to say, God, where in this culture do you show up? And where can I show up? And where can I preach and evangelize where you're already moving and working? And the hard part about this is that when you're going to have this posture of not culture is the enemy, but culture is opportunity, the hard part is then you have to do the work of unlearning what is bad in that culture and relearning what is good. When I was 21 years old, I graduated from a psych college, and I was a marketing major, and my goal in life was to make commercials, right? Um, I know some of you might be Eagles fans in here. You win Super Bowls like once a lifetime, so I'm sorry. But as a Giants fan, we win like once a decade, you know? So we win pretty often. But the other nine to ten years that we don't win, like I watch Super Bowl commercials, right? And I love them. And I, I just look at them like, man, 30 seconds? They pay you a million dollars? This sounds brilliant. Like this is what I wanted to do. And, and so when I was applying for jobs, you know, I had a bunch of jobs I knew I could get. I'm not going to say them because, you know, there's jobs I knew I could get. But then there was one job that I knew I couldn't get, right? I looked at the whole resume. I looked at everything they were asking for. They wanted 10 years of experience, an MBA, a portfolio. And I was like, why are these fools giving me an interview? <laughs> like, it's just like my resume at that time was summer camp. Like, that was my job experience, right? So I actually looked at it as like, you know what? I'm not going to get this job, but they want to give me a group interview. So I'm going to go and, like, learn stuff, right? Like, it's going to be fine, right? I said my group interview, and the three people who are with me all are waxing poetic about their resume, their career, all the wonderful things they've done. And you would think I, was, I would be intimidated, but I was 21. <laughs> Can't be intimidated when you don't know any better. And so they're waxing poetic, and it gets to me, and it's like, I almost feel like the person looked at my resume and was just like, why are you here? Like, is this like some kind of joke, you know? And I didn't realize at the time, but it was the CEO of the company who does this thing where he doesn't put his face on the company so you don't know what he looks like. And this is before like social media really took off, so it's hard to find people, so I had no idea. And basically it was just like, why are you here, you know? And I think this was a touch from the Lord, or maybe I was just so cocky I didn't know any better. But I looked that man in the eye and I said, hmm, what's interesting to me is that all these people have shared these things. But as I think about it, I know that you as a supervisor are going to have to retrain all of them. You're going to have to like unlearn all this stuff they know and their ways of doing and their expertise. You're just going to have to throw all that away. And that's how you probably knew I was going to be a preacher. Because I, I actually said this. I was like, but for me, what you teach me, not only am I a blank slate, it'll be the gospel truth. And I think it got me the job. <laughs> I think it got me the job. But more than that, it taught me the lesson that our culture is going to have a lot of things that yes, culture is not the enemy and God's gonna work within the context of culture, but it taught me that our culture is gonna have a lot of things that we have to unburden ourselves from, that we have to literally take off, that we have to unlearn so that we can learn what it means to follow God. And I think that's why Luke includes the story of Simon, because he could have ended at verse 8 when there's great joy in the city. He could have ended um, at verse, hold on, I want to make sure I get it right here. He could have ended it at verse 13 when all followed Philip everywhere and, and Simon follows him and he's baptized. He could have even ended it after Peter and John prayed for the people, but he doesn't end it there because he wants Jesus to know that within every culture, there's going to be things that don't look like Jesus. And we have to throw those off. So when we meet Simon, Simon is one of the most interesting people in Bible history. 
right? Depending whether you're reading a church father or an early Roman historian, they don't know who this guy was. There's some people who will say, yes, he was a sorcerer. There's some people who will say he was a false messiah. And you even see it in the text where people are like, he is great, right? The false messiah thing wasn't just a name. There's people who actually believed. Again, fellas, I'm sorry, I apologize, you know, but this is what they believed. Not me, this is what they believed, right? But there are some people in that Greco-Roman culture who believe that when God created all his wisdom, when God, fellas, again, I apologize. This will be bad for your ego, but get over it. Um, when God created all his wisdom, he couched it in a woman. Again, I apologize, right? But that's what they believed, right? And so not only did God couch all his wisdom in a woman, but every now and then God would reincarnate into a human man to be able to connect all that wisdom to preach the gospel. And so some people believed that Simon was this Messiah. There was other people who believed that Simon was, was an angel. There were some people who believed like it was all just tricks, but the tricks were really good because he could levitate and he could fly. And I'm like, wow, this guy sounds amazing. We don't know. But what we know for sure was that he was a sorcerer, that he had a following, and that people really rich and really poor, really high and really low, all worshipped him. And so God is going to say, within this context, I need to show that I'm supreme, but I also need to show you why, apart from me, this is nothing. So when Simon comes onto the scene, this is who we meet. And Philip's witness is so good that Simon, even though this is what he was following, what he was doing, still comes and chooses to follow Jesus, still comes and commits to being baptized. And it's a reminder to us that, yes, culture is not an enemy. God can work within culture, but God can save anybody. Your job is just to be faithful. So God saves Philip, or God saves Simon through the ministry of Philip. And, and Simon follows him everywhere. So when Peter and John come to help, I think this is interesting too. Peter and John, who've been in Jerusalem the whole time, right? I almost imagine that apostles meeting, right? They're sitting around, do, 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 Samaria. God is doing what? Where? We need to go, right? So they show up to assist. And I love that they show up because they realize that, yes, people are believing in Jesus and, and being baptized. But how the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost hasn't yet hit Samaria. And I love that we all have a role to play in this evangelism thing. We all have a role to play in this kingdom thing. And so they come down and they realize that our role here is to lay hands on these people and pray for the spirit to come down. And, and, and I know some of you, I do it too. So again, this is on me too, right? Some of you, when we pray, right, you open your eyes, you sneak a little peek. I think that's what Simon does here. Because he's noticing as Peter and John are praying, something's changing in the room. He's noticing that people just seems like empowered. He's noticing something's different. And so what is his reaction? He says, hey, um, I want that. I don't know what that is with the spirit, but I want that. And to me, this is the great irony in this whole story. Simon is probably very wealthy, but he made his money doing what? Sorcery, lying, deceiving people. And now he wants to take that money to literally buy a gift from God. Now me, I'm not Peter. If you lie, you deceive, you steal, right? You're going to go to jail. But before you go to jail, if you want to donate all that money to Brethren in Christ World Missions, I'm not going to be mad at you. You know, like, I'm going to drive you to jail myself, you know, like, put you away for lying because that's bad. But if you just happen to donate all that money, like, I'm flexible, right, on that, right? But he's trying to buy this gift. And it's interesting because I think God wants us to know this thing. Like, it's not just about the gift. It's about the giver. And it's not just about the fact that this guy has the audacity to say, I want this power so I can transform this power unto people. 
but it's the fact that all of us have to unlearn what we learn from our culture. And all of us have to submit all that we are to Jesus. And Peter rebukes him and says, Simon, you must repent and you must pray. And I think it's simony or simony, I don't know how to pronounce it. The English majors can help me. But it's this idea of buying office in the church. And that word continues to this day from Simon. But the heartbreaking thing in this story is that we don't know what happens to Simon. Like Peter rebukes him and Simon goes, no, 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 no. How about you pray for me so that won't happen? And the reason this is heartbreaking to me is if you were with us a couple weeks ago, if you were reading in Acts, you're familiar with Acts, remember Ananias and Sapphira? Remember when they did something that God didn't like? Remember how they dropped down and died, right? So to me, the audacity of this man, like, we don't know when that happened. Like, maybe it was last week. Or even if it was a year ago, two years ago. Me, if God's going to make people drop dead, and I'm found in the error, I'm not going to be like, I need y'all to pray for me, right? Like, I'm going to drop on my knees and pray and beg right then and there. But he doesn't do that. And I always wonder, and I've been thinking about that this week, like, why doesn't Luke tell him why, like, what, what happens to him? Because Luke doesn't think that's significant. Luke thinks it's significant that you know that your culture might be good and bad and you got to unlearn stuff. Luke thinks it's significant that you remember it's about the giver, not the gift. But Luke thinks, verse 25, it's the best way to end the story. And how does verse 25 end? It says this about Peter and John. After they had proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So you have Philip the evangelist, first one to go to the enemies. You have Peter and John, leaders in the church, entrenched in Jerusalem from the witness of Philip, from the power of the Spirit. They now feel compelled not only to Jerusalem, but to their world. And I love that Peter and John take up that mantle to go and preach to the villages. We think about lessons for today. We think about what it means to evangelize. I think Philip's life gives us a bunch of illustrations, a bunch of things we can hold on to. The first one I want you to hold on to is that God calls all of us to be faithful now for the work later. God's like a good boss. Most of you, if you have jobs, right, you might start off doing one thing. But what happens if you show any kind of competency? Or at least if they think you have competency, they add on and add on and add on. The difference between God and that boss is that as God adds on, he equips you more. As God gives you more responsibility, he gives you more help. He gives you more of him. He helps you on and on and on. So what God calls you to do is whatever it is that you call your responsibility, your calling, your gift, be faithful to God now. And he will use it now, but help you for later. And that's how we evangelize together. The second one is that God calls all of us to share the good news always. And the good news is simply that Jesus is Lord. So the question for us becomes, in my job, in my family, on my neighborhood, in my building, on my block, how am I living to proclaim that Jesus is Lord? Because if this world doesn't know Jesus, Jesus seems to think it's enough that he's got the spirit and he's got you. He's got the spirit and he's got you. So how are you living in a way that points people to Jesus? And the third way I think we evangelize is to know that, yes, God works within the context of our culture, but God also works within the context of your story. Your story, your life is not only unique, but if you give everything you've been through to God, the good and the bad, the blessing of our God is that he will use that for his glory. Whatever you've suffered, whatever you've fought your way through, that God has led you through, if you give that to God, there will come a day 
And there will come a person who will come along who's suffering and going through that same thing, and God will say, look, you're now my expert. Show that person what my love looks like. And if you've come through and you've triumphed and you've done good, God will say, look how my daughter has done. Everything we go through, if we give it to God, he will use it to bless the world. And the last thing I think we learned from Philip when it comes to evangelism is that all of us are gifted. All of us have a story. All of us can make a change in this world. But it's not about the gifts. It's not about our story. It's not about the change we want. It's about the giver of those gifts. It's about the story of Jesus. And it's about you shining your light for God's glory. That's what it means to evangelize. The gospel and living, the evangelion, must be the same thing. So how is your life proclaiming Jesus to your world? I'd like to invite up the worship team. We're going to end singing a song that may not be as familiar, but it's, it's go, go, light your, go Light Your Candle. Well, Go Light Your World, I think is the official name of the song. And I was going to save this for the benediction, but I think it's important for us to remember that, yes, Jesus is the light of the world. But before he left in Matthew 5, he promised to all of us that what? You are the light of the world. That's why it's important that we live as carriers of the gospel, as evangelical, or as in evangelizing the world, as in telling people the story of Jesus. Let's stand and sing together. If there's any pastors in the room, I'd like to invite you up. We'd love to pray for you for anything you've got going on. Um, and as we sing this song, may you be reminded of Jesus' simple call that you are to indeed go into the world with your light. Let's stand and sing together.
services that we have every year is our Christmas Eve service and at that service we start up front with the Christ candle and we light it up I think we start a staff and then we, we, we take it down the line we pass on the light to each other and the reason I love that candle is because like most of you who grew up in church I grew up singing this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine but I was too content with Jesus being the light of the world I was too content with Jesus that hey, you do all that but Jesus seems to be too content with the fact that we are the light of the world and that's what he says in Matthew, right? And then Jesus himself, we search such, such a humble God that's willing to say, I'm going to go work on heaven until it's perfect for you. And then heaven's going to come down like it always does. But before that, I'm going to leave you and the spirit to take that light that you have and to share it with one another and to brighten up this dark, dark world. I think that's a really beautiful challenge to us, not just a visual picture, but a challenge to us that all of us carry light. All of us are responsible to share that light. And all of us are made stronger by the light that is Jesus, but also the light that is one another. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your humility that you've chosen us to tell the world about your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we pray that we learn to continue to submit to you. We pray that we hear the voice of the Spirit. We pray that we listen to the movings of the Spirit, the calls of the Spirit. Father God, we thank you that you always are home to sinners. We thank you that you're always are home to the broken. We thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, is the one who redeems and reconciles and restores. So Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, we thank you that you've humbly chosen us to be your light to our world. So Lord, help us to get our light from you, to share our light with each other, and together bring light to this dark, dark world. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.